Well, I've really enjoyed hearing all of your Why Jesus stories, and I so have appreciated uh, the honesty and probably more than anything, the vulnerability that uh, uh, you've been willing to share. And so uh, we decided that we were going to do one more of these stories, and that's mine. There we go. (laughs) Thank you. Um, We got a new dog this last week. we drove down, I actually drove down to uh, L.A. and picked it up. Uh, it's an 11-year-old dog. This is not a young dog, but we wanted a dog that was going to be gentle with our kids. And what I realized real quick is, like, the dog, I call the dog. The dog doesn't look at me, turn to me. I tell the dog to sit. It doesn't sit. And so if you get anything out of the sermon today, what I'm hoping you hear is that you can teach an old dog a new trick. And that's me, you know, that if you are willing to slow down, read the Bible, interpret it, consider many ways to interpret, you might change. And that is what has happened to me, and that's the story I want to share with you today. Um, When I was in high school, I was part of a church youth group which played all kinds of games. That as a grandparent today, I would question, seriously question what we were doing. (laughs) Things like a car rally with teenagers racing in their cars to be the first to find the giant spotlight that is shining in the sky. Can you imagine? I can think of nothing better than teenagers racing in cars, right? Or playing a huge game of tag at SFO or a contest to see which team can get the most amazing Polaroid camera picture of kids literally holding hands on El Camino and stopping traffic. My most favorite game was something called Bigger and Better. Have you heard of that game? The goal is to take something like a pencil and then to go into the neighborhoods or shopping centers and see if you could trade what you have for something else, something that is bigger and better. And then you continue to trade with the trade you just got until finally you bring back something that truly is bigger and better. And I've seen kids who started with a pencil bring back bikes, TVs, refrigerators, bowling balls, beat-up cars, and, and younger brothers and sisters. <laughs> How do you explain that to a parent? The point was bigger and better. So for me, why Jesus? Well, the answer I have learned over six decades is that Jesus is bigger and better than I ever thought. I grew up in a Christian family with two loving parents, and my first memories of of them are serving in the inner city churches in Houston, Texas, and then putting on puppet shows uh, with my friends in the neighborhood about Noah and the ark. And because of my background, I always thought I was a Christian. It it really wasn't a question because my faith felt safe and secure because of my parents' love for Jesus. I remember when I was 10 years old, I was invited to a church in Redwood City to preach on the parable of the talents. It's a simple parable, and it was a quick sermon. I mean, I was 10 years old, right? And if you know this story, the story's more than just being about money, It's about how we should use what we have wisely, whatever we have. It's about giving our time and talents and sharing with others. That's what's important. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. 
And this, for me, at 10 years old, was an epiphany to learn about God's radical love and how we are to share and care for others. This made sense to me when I was 10 and still does today. My faith, it, in, my faith in God ramped up big time when I was in high school as I experienced God in profound ways. I started going to a youth group at San Mateo Baptist Church, and I was going there at least three times a week and bought into what they were doing. I liked it, and it meant a lot to me. This was the church where I saw our youth group grow from about 20 teenagers to 500 kids in three years, which is amazing considering that they only had 100 adults in that church. So yes, it was a loud church with windows frequently breaking and holes were common in the sheetrock as kids scurried up and down the hallways. But kids were coming. Kids were accepting Jesus. And it was amazing to see and experience And this experience helped my faith come alive as it connected me with this beautiful story of Jesus and the Bible. And that can change you. And it changed me to the point of reading my Bible for an hour every day, no exceptions, because I enjoyed it. I prayed all the time because I felt a personal connection to God. I memorized about 100 Bible verses just to capture in my head the essence of Christianity God's word. That's just what I did. And even at that age, I began to consider becoming a pastor. In fact, I left college after my freshman year to be an intern at that same Baptist church in San Mateo. And it was a great experience working with kids from Hillsdale High School, running the programs, speaking with students, and helping with the church's accounting because I like finance too. But my faith, my faith got its first taste of confusion and doubt when my youth leader was literally kicked out of the Bay Area because he was caught fooling around with teenage girls and cheating on his wife. Just awful. And when I learned what he had done, it shook me, though it took a while for me to recognize and understand this hurt and the impact it had on my faith because I looked up to this guy He was my spiritual leader, and his actions, they tainted my view of ministry. I mean, how could he do this? And I struggled as I thought about the pain he inflicted on so many girls. And in hindsight, I should have seen this coming. But I was young and impressionable and enamored by this person's magnetic personality. So I went back to college. But now I wasn't reading my Bible anymore or going to church. Something had changed. And Pete Enns would call this something a curveball. Side note, for your own safety and peace of mind, don't put pastors on a pedestal. That is what I learned at a young age. They are humans and they can make horrible decisions. Your focus should be on Jesus. That's who you should trust because sadly, your pastor may disappoint you. I've known many people in in some of the churches I've gone to that have experienced spiritual, sexual, emotional, or psychological abuse by pastors. Some of you may be surprised by what what I'm saying. And if that's you, well, good for you 
because there are others here today that have been personally hurt or seen the damage that can happen when a pastor steps out of line. And the truth is, people need to be protected. Think about the damage caused by Mark Driscoll at Mars Hill or Jerry Falwell, who is the president of Liberty University, or Willow Creek Pastor Bill Hybels, or Robbie Zacharias. And there are people around here, too, around this area that I won't even mention, but many of you know them. Now, it's important to note that the vast majority of Christian leaders and pastors are wonderful people. They are. They are sacrificial, kind, and gentle shepherds. I spend a lot of time with pastors. I'm around them regularly. I love pastors, and I love being a pastor. And to be clear, I have not seen abuse of any kind at Spark. I haven't. But we need to be attentive just like all people do attending churches. We must be wary of domineering, heavy-handed pastors who get by because they are inspiring, dynamic, and get things done. They may have tremendous skills, but they may lack character. These are the people who who can become bully pastors, who manipulate and intimidate without bursts of anger. We must be wary of celebrity pastors who are often given special privileges and entitlements, which many think they deserve because they have narcissistic personalities. And the truth is, the damage they cause can be overwhelming causing people to doubt Christianity, doubt the church, doubt God, and doubt oneself. Maybe we should do a sermon in the future on God's vision for what authority and leadership in a church should look like, but that's another topic. After college, I got involved in the high school program at that sweet little church again because that church still meant a lot to me, but mostly because Tammy was working there. That's the truth, and that's where we eventually got married. And then life happened for us. We bought a house. We got a dog. We had two kids. We were both highly involved in our careers and our church life as we traveled across the country because of my job. And the good news was my connection with Jesus was back and strong as I realized that my God was bigger and better than what my youth leader showed me. And the interesting thing was that everywhere we've moved, there was always a seminary very close to where we moved. There was Denver Seminary, which was about a mile from my house. There was Covenant Theological Seminary in St. Louis, which was also close. And there was Fuller Seminary which had a campus right here in Menlo Park, which I could easily walk to the campus. I say all this because I was still wrestling with whether I should be a pastor. I wasn't sure, but at that time it felt right. It felt like something that God was leading me to. And so I started seminary in 2004 without a clear plan, but simply to see how God might use me. Well, three years later, I was at Menlo Church. I was active in all their ministries, especially a service called the Cafe, and they heard they were starting something new. They were going to start up five new campuses around the Bay Area, and their first choice, their first site they wanted to start was to have a campus in San Mateo. San Mateo. Do you see the connection for me? 
I knew these people in San Mateo. I was raised in that area. I had friends there. It's where my sweet Baptist church was that really kick-started my faith. My mind began to spin, and I quickly felt like God was calling me to this job. It was a fast decision, but it seemed very clear to me because in my opinion, I had the skills, the experience, clearly the passion, and what I believed to be the calling for God, from God for this job. And for me, the question was not whether I was the right person for the job, but whether I had the courage to follow Jesus in obedience to this calling. And then this passage came to me in Luke 5, where Jesus came before Simon, Andrew, James, and John as they were about to go fishing. And if you remember, Jesus got into Simon's boat and had him go out into the lake where they caught an incredible number of fish. This was the 153. And as I reflected on this passage, I had this image that Jesus was trying to get me He was trying to get into my boat, into my career, and into my life, and into my family's life. And he was asking me to go with him on this huge adventure, which admittedly would be a huge decision. And I recognized it was a very scary decision. But ultimately, I didn't want to be like Zebedee, the father of James and John and the hired men who were left behind and missed out on experiencing ministry and front row seats with Jesus. So I was all in. I was ready to serve God in this new calling. And Tammy was in full support and believed she was called to serve too. She was also dreaming about this adventure. Even my closest friends and advisors affirmed my thinking and encouraged me to aggressively pursue this ministry position. And so I did. I went after it because I was convinced the job was mine because God had made it for me. And I went so far, get this, I went so far as to tell the senior pastor of Menlo Church that I thought this was a slam dunk, a slam dunk, because I was the guy. I was the guy which in hindsight might have sounded arrogant, but it's what I truly believed. Well, as it turns out, I didn't get the job. And I think there were three reasons. First reason, from the church's perspective, they wanted someone who already had a master's in divinity and had previous church planting experience, and that's fair. Second reason, maybe this was not the job that God had in mind for me at this time, which is reasonable. And third, maybe God was just being kind and just wanted to see if I had the courage, the faith to actually make a hard decision to do something that would completely change my family's life. I don't know for sure the reason, but this experience, it brought me closer to Jesus. It did. And it increased the burning in my heart to be a pastor. So I continue with my regular job, which I love, by the way. I finished my seminary degree, and then Tammy and I left Menlo Church to find a church that better aligned with our values and where we could be most helpful. And we found Spark, this little church that fit what we were looking for. And Tammy and I have learned so much here, and we've learned so much from all of you, because Spark is a church that has humility when we read Scripture and is open to hearing different perspectives. A church that is brave, a church that is brave and discusses topics where others won't, things like immigration, racism, 
sexual and gender identity, patriarchy, climate change, gun violence, and what is happening to the evangelical church. Spark is a church that looks at what is happening in our world and responds by helping refugees, standing up with people that have a different faith, and showing up monthly on a street corner to remind people that black lives matter. Just to name a few things that makes me so proud to call Spark my church. And friends, because of Spark and because of you, you've helped me see Jesus in new ways. That's, that is bigger and better than I ever thought. And wouldn't you know it, Spark in all its kindness asked me seven years ago to be a pastor, which blesses me more than you will ever know. I have a quick story. You may not know this, but I struggled with my health in 2020. Maybe it was my body reacting to the pandemic. Maybe it was the global recession where the unemployment rate jumped to almost 15%. But most likely, it's just what happens when you're over 60 years old. And I became that guy, you know, the sick guy. It's not who I wanted to be, but sometimes in our life, things are just out of your control and you need others. You need their help. It started when I was hit by a car, yes, hit by a car in Palo Alto, driven by a teenager that sent me flying when she came up and went over the curb and hit me while I was walking on the sidewalk. I don't remember much about that time I was hit, other than sensing that something was behind me, and as I turned and looked, it was too late. And the next thing I know, I'm looking at blood on my hands and knees, and fortunately, I didn't hit my head. And this teenager, she was so scared, and she didn't mean for this to happen, to hit me. It was an accident. And I felt fine at first with adrenaline rushing through my body until it wasn't. And then I basically collapsed and couldn't walk for about a month. And people prayed for me and texted me and were present with me, and Tammy was a saint. And then I got a bad case of the shingles that persisted for two months. Friends, please take my advice. Get the shingles shot. You don't want shingles. Because the shingles made me really tired all the time. And looking like, well, not my best. With blisters and red blotchy patches on my face that itched and were painful at the same time. And people prayed for me, texted me, and were present with me. And Tammy was a saint. And then one of my saliva glands in my face plugged up, and I looked like a, like a tennis ball was stuck in my neck while all the saliva just backed up. Sorry, kind of gross. And it hurt so much so that I could hardly open my mouth, and it was just painful to eat anything. And I was sucking on lemons and using hot compressors to try to unplug the saliva gland, but no such luck. And I felt like I couldn't breathe. The air was not getting down my trachea, which was very scary. And I started panicking. So at night, I tried to sit, on a, to sit on a couch with my head up to get in as much oxygen as I could. But I couldn't sleep. As I worried about getting oxygen, oxygen just enough oxygen. So the nights were awful. I hated the nights because I couldn't sleep and I was afraid. And people prayed for me and texted me and were present for me. And Tammy was a saint. 
And this clogged saliva again was causing my blood pressure to go up, and I felt it, and I didn't like it, so I decided I needed to go to the emergency room. But before I got there, before I even left the house, I got a call from my doctor, which I could tell from his voice, this was not good news. And he told me that I had prostate cancer. And I need to have surgery right away, which shocked me. And this news and all of this stacking of my health issues in 2020 reached a point that I was just overwhelmed and honestly just felt defeated. I mean, I could sound happy, but deep down, I was more than sad. I was depressed. And I remember sitting in the doctor's office, filling out a form, which you all have probably seen, a form asking questions to see if you are depressed. And I remember saying to myself, I am depressed because this is the worst I had ever felt. And if there was ever a time to admit that I was depressed, it was now because I was exhausted and the news about my body was just getting worse. But what ultimately helped me get through this year of calamity, besides good doctors and a little pill called Lexapro, was that people were praying for me, texting me, and were present with me, and Tammy was a saint. Because I was in no shape to pray for myself. I was in no shape to care for myself. I wasn't. I was just focused on my pain and suffering and sadness. And I truly believe in hindsight that these people, all of these people were the hands and feet of Jesus who cared for me when I most needed it, which showed me once again that Jesus is bigger and better than I ever thought. Because it's not just Jesus. Jesus has a team. And that's you and me aligned with Jesus to do his work and his mission. And I find that exciting and compelling and something that I really needed. Now, that's a lot of history about my faith journey, but the real change, the big change, I think, is about how my faith has evolved over the past 15 years. Maybe I should say my theology, in terms of how I read and interpret Scripture, which has allowed me to see God today as bigger and better than the God I believed in and that sweet Baptist church. Before, before I tell you how I evolved or how I changed my views, let me just spend a few minutes sharing from several books about the importance of thinking and rethinking. That's the process I went through. Some of you may have already heard what I'm going to say from an earlier sermon that I gave, but I want to share it again, at least a summary version, because I think it's important. It certainly was for me, and it helped me see Jesus in a new way. Adam Grant wrote a book called Think Again, The Power of Knowing What You Don't Know. He says that when people reflect on what it takes to be mentally fit, the first idea that comes to mind is usually intelligence. You know, the smarter you are, the more complex the problems you can solve, and the faster you can solve them. Intelligence is traditionally viewed as the ability to think and learn. Yet in a changing world, there's another set of cognitive skills that might matter more the ability to rethink and unlearn. But unfortunately, we hesitate to rethink our thoughts and opinions. In fact, we seem to hesitate at the very idea of rethinking. Part of the problem, according to Adam Grant, is cognitive laziness. 
Some psychologists point out that we are mental misers where we prefer the ease of hanging on to old views over the difficulty of grappling with the new ones. Yet there are also deeper forces behind our resistance to rethinking. You see, questioning ourselves makes the world more unpredictable. It requires us to admit that the facts may have changed and that what was once we thought was right may now be wrong. And reconsidering things... Is something And reconsidering something we believe deeply can threaten our identity, making us feel as though we're losing a part of ourselves. And that can be scary. Scott McKnight wrote a book called The Blue Parakeet, Rethinking How You Read the Bible. And he would agree with Adam Grant that we all tend to think and learn with biases. And he suggests in his book that we absolutely do this when we read the Bible. Scott McKnight says that we pick and choose through the lens of our theology. And at its worst, we use picking and choosing as a license to find what we want and ignore the rest. This is hard to admit, but it's true. And as readers of the Bible, we need to face this problem squarely and honestly. McKnight says that some people read the Bible as if its passages were Rorschach inkblots that we see in our head. To say it differently, they project onto the Bible what they want to see. If you show them enough biblical passages and you get them to talk about them, you may find that what is important to them is maybe not even in the Bible. But the problem is, reading the Bible as an inkblot is projecting onto the Bible our ideas and our desires, finding our story in the Bible instead of finding the Bible story to be our story. Pete N. adds that we need to be wise in reading the situation in the text and not simply the biblical text, but sometimes the response or application to the text depends on the circumstances. He writes about how early church leaders used wisdom and new thinking. This is the early church leaders used wisdom and new thinking to spread the word of God. They didn't just stick with tradition. For example, in Acts 15, the Jerusalem council needed to exercise wisdom and discernment considering Gentile believers, particularly the issue of whether Gentiles were to be circumcised as an entryway to becoming Christians. You know this was a huge deal for the Jews. Being circumcised was part of the Abrahamic covenant with God. But it was also a big deal for the Gentiles who lived in a Greco-Roman culture where circumcision was not a common thing. So the council, in their wisdom, they compromised. See, the Jerusalem council came up with a wise solution to advance the gospel. One they said seemed good to the Holy Spirit. One that didn't push the Gentiles away. In fact, it advanced the gospel. And one that did not offend unnecessarily their Jewish brothers and sisters. The point is this. This was a good solution with new thinking. And Peter N. says that this spirit-led wisdom with new thinking is available to Christians even today. Scott McKnight says that what we most need is not a return to the first or fourth or 16th or 18th century, but a fresh blowing of God's spirit on our culture in our days and in our ways. We need a 21st century Christian. We need 21st century Christians living out the biblical gospel in 21st century ways. Even more, if we read the Bible properly, 
This is quote, properly, we will see God never asked one generation to step back in time and live the way it had done before. No God spoke in each no, God spoke in each generation in that generation's way. I love this statement that as Christians, we need to listen to God speak to us in our world through God's ancient word and through God's spirit to find a pattern of how to live in our world and share God's love in our culture today and time. When I went to that sweet Baptist church, I read the Bible literally. And if God said it, I believed it, and that settled it. I was highly confident in my beliefs, but I also had a little, little breadth of knowledge If you asked me a question about the Bible, I had the right answer, and everyone I went to church with had the same answer. We all read the Bible the same way, which was through our tradition, and nothing changed. There were no questions because we thought we had figured it out. Can you relate? We knew what church God went to, what what Bible version translation God prefers, and how God would vote. We knew the kinds of people God approves of. And as it turns out, God liked all the same things that we liked. So you probably aren't going to be surprised that at that time, I believed in a seven-day creation. Because I thought that's what the Bible said. There was clearly a missing link in there somewhere. I had no idea that the Genesis creation could have been poetry, beautiful words that were arguing that the God of the Bible was bigger and stronger than all the gods that the other nations believed in. The first time I heard this view that that maybe we didn't have a seven-day creation was when I was at Menlo Church. And I still remember many members in that church being upset and walking out the door. And to go even further on this, the English word day that we see in Genesis is suspect because this word day is translated from the Hebrew word yom, which can mean a 24-hour of time, period of time, which is a day, but it can also mean an unspecified period of time, not a 24-hour period. I believe in the story of Noah and not a literal worldwide flood because that's what I was taught. I had no idea that other nations had their own flood stories, and they were similar to the Noah story. And not only similar, they were also much older than the version we find in the Bible. In fact, the Sumerian epic of Gilgamesh dates back to around 5,000 years B.C. So logically speaking, if the biblical version of these stories are, are similar and younger, then the biblical writers weren't working from scratch. I affirm being a complementarian, meaning that men and women have different but complementary roles and responsibilities in marriage, family life, and religious leadership, because that's what I was taught. That's what I thought the Bible said, though I should say Tammy and I never lived that way. I had no idea that the cultural context of the early church was ancient and patriarchal and based on Roman household codes. That was the context of the early church. That was the context of our Bible. And so, num- so, and so no wonder we find antiquated views and behaviors in the Bible. But that doesn't mean we should still live that way today. I believe women shouldn't preach in church because Paul would know, right? I had no idea that when we read the Bible, we need to consider not just the text, but the actual situation. Maybe a statement by Paul was meant for a unique circumstance, 
a particular community rather than something that applies to all women in all places and in all times. I had no idea that the Bible was full of great examples of women leading and teaching like Miriam, Deborah, Ruth, Esther, Junia, and Priscilla. And we certainly can't believe that women shouldn't preach when we hear the depth and the powerful teaching and preaching of our very own Pastor Daniel. I believed homosexuality was a sin because I thought the Bible was very clear on this. I didn't know there are seven passages in the Bible that are used to condemn homosexuality. But each of these clobber verses can be credibly argued against theologically if you consider them in their historical context and in the original language. I didn't know that people were picking and choosing. They read, that they read Leviticus, that a man should not lie with another man, but somehow they ignored other verses in Leviticus, like do not wear clothing with two kinds of material, or do not cut your hair at the sides of your head, or don't get a tattoo. But I changed. This old dog changed. I evolved as I read books that offer new perspectives from authors like N.T. Wright, Rachel Held Evans, Jamar Tisby, Justin Lee, Austin Channing Brown, Kristen Coves Dumay, Pete Inns, A.J. Levine, and Brian Stevenson. I began to hear stories from people who were not like me and grew to enjoy them and respect them just as they are. I listen to podcasts like The Holy Post, The Bible for Normal People, and The Liturgist that discusses scriptural interpretations and what is happening in the church with a big C. And it was refreshing. It was. I discovered new things, new perspectives, new answers. I felt like I was waking up that I had been blind, but now my faith was being renewed that I was coming alive, and as I began to rethink and unlearn and discover that God was so much bigger and better than I ever thought. So to conclude, why Jesus? Because Jesus is bigger and better than I ever thought. Whereas a small child, my faith felt safe and secure because of my parents' love for Jesus. How as a 10-year-old, I discovered God's radical love and how we are to share and care for others. How as a teenager, I had a profound experience at a small Baptist church seeing hundreds of kids turn to a life of following Jesus, myself included. When I had a curveball thrown at me that knocked me down, but Jesus brought me back when I realized I had put too much trust in a person instead of Jesus. When I didn't get a pastor's job at one church, but I got it at another, which wasn't bigger, but it was better. When I learned that Jesus does use us to care for others and help answer prayers. And when I learned to have humility and curiosity when reading Scripture and being open to different interpretations, which caused my faith to awaken and come alive. It is these experiences, and there are many more, that remind me that Jesus is bigger and better than I have ever We're going to go to a time of communion now. And um, as we go into it, maybe this is an opportunity for you to think about the questions that you might have about your faith, about your church, that bother you. And maybe it's a time to wrestle with that, to see if there are 
interpretations or other ways that the Spirit is leading you, leading you to consider. It's not a quick thing to change your mind. It shouldn't be a quick thing to change your mind. But if you don't start, you'll never get there. And it's worth the work. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Friends, the table is open, and all are welcome.